0: Section Zero of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter, translated by W. C. Firebaugh. Preface and Introduction. Preface. Among the difficulties which beset the path of the conscientious translator, a sense of his own unworthiness must take precedence. But another, scarcely less disconcerting, is the likelihood of misunderstanding some allusion, which was perfectly familiar to the author and his public, but which, by reason of its purely local significance, is obscure and subject to the misinterpretation and emendation of a later generation a translation worthy of the name is as much the product of a literary epic as it is of the brain and labour of a scholar and melmeth's version of the letters of pliny the younger made as it was at a period when the art of english letter-writing had attained its highest excellence may well be the despair of our twentieth-century apostles of specialization who to-day could imbue a translation of the golden ass with the exquisite flavour of william adlington's unscholarly version of that masterpiece who could rival arthur Golding's rendering of the metamorphose of ovid or francis hickey's masterly rendering of lucian's true history but eternal life means endless change and in nothing is this truth more strikingly manifest than in the growth and decadence of living languages and in the translation of dead tongues into the ever-changing tissue of the living Were it not for this, no translation worthy of the name would ever stand in need of revision, except in instances where the discovery and collation of fresh manuscripts had improved the text. In the case of an author, whose characters speak in the argo proper of their surroundings, the necessity for revision is even more imperative. The change in cultured speech of a language is a process that requires years to become pronounced, the evolution of slang is rapid, and its usage ephemeral. For example, Stephen Gasly, in his Bibliography of Petronius, calls attention to Henry Thurston Peck's rendering of bal um bomum by he's a daisy, and remarks, appropriately enough, that this was well enough for 1898, but we would now be more inclined to render it he's a peach. Again, Peck renders Elude erat Verbere by that was life but in the words of our lyric american jazz we would be more inclined to render it that was the life but as professor gasoli has said no rendering of this part of the satyricon can be final it must always be in the slang of the hour some writes the immortal translator of rabelais in his preface have deservedly gained esteem by translating Yet not many condescend to translate, but such as cannot invent, though to do the first well requires often as much genius as to do the latter. I wish, reader, thou mayest be as willing to do the author justice, as I have strove to do him right. Many scholars have lamented the failure of Justice Lippisius to comment upon Petronius, or edit an edition of the Satyricon, had he done so, he might have gone far towards piercing the veil of darkness, which enshrouds the authorship of the work, and the very age in which the composer flourished. To me, personally, the fact that Lawrence Stern did not undertake aversion has caused much regret. The master who delineated Tristram Shandy's father, and the intrigue between the widow Wadman and Uncle Toby, have drawn Trimalchio and his peers to admiration. W.C.F. Introduction. Of the many masterpieces which classical antiquity has bequeathed to modern times, few have attained, at intervals, to such popularity. Few have so gripped the interest of scholars and men of letters, as has this scintillating miscellany known as the Satyricon, ascribed by tradition to that Petronius who, at the court of Nero, acted as arbiter of elegance and dictator of fashion. The flashing wit, the masterly touches which bring out the characters with all the detail of a fine old copper etching the marvellous use of realism by this its first profit the sure knowledge of the perspective and background best adapted to each episode the racy style so smooth so elegant so simple when the educated are speaking beguile the reader and blind him at first to the many discrepancies and incoherencies with which the text as we have it, is marred. The more one concentrates upon this author, the more apparent these faults become, and the more one regrets the lacunae in the text. Notwithstanding numerous articles which deal with this work, some from the pens of the most profound scholars, its author is still shrouded in the mists of uncertainty and conjecture. He is as impersonal as Shakespeare, as aloof as Flaubert, in the opinion of Charles Wibley, and it may be added as genial as rabelais an enigmatic genius whose secret will never be laid bare with the resources at our present command as i am not writing for scholars i do not intend going very deeply into the labyrinth of critical controversy which surrounds the author and the work but i shall deal with a few of the questions which if properly understood will enhance the value of the satyricon and contribute in some degree to a better understanding of the author. For the sake of convenience, the questions discussed in this introduction will be arranged in the following order. 1. The satiricon. 2. The author. A. His character. B. His purpose in writing. C. Time in which the action is placed. D. Localization of the principal episode. 3. Realism. A. Influence of the Satyricon upon the literature of the world. 4. The Forgeries 1. The Satyricon. Hasius and Scaliger derive the word from the Greek. Whence comes our English word satyr. But Casaubon, Dacier, and Spanheim derive it from the Latin satyra, a plate filled with different kinds of food, and they refer to porphyrions, multis et varius rebus, Hot carmen refertum est. The text, as we possess it, may be divided into three divisions. The first and last relate to the adventures of Enculpius and his companions. The second, which is a digression, describes the dinner of Trimalchio. That the work was originally divided into books, we had long known from ancient glossaries, and we learn, from the title of the Tranguriesian manuscript, that the fragments therein contained are excerpts from the fifteenth and sixteenth books. An interpolation of Fulgentius, Paris, seven nine seven five, attributes Book fourteen to the scene related in Chapter twenty of the work as we have it. And the glossary of Saint Benedict, Sensis, cites the passage sed video te tutum, in illa herare, quae troe ostendit, Chapter eighty nine as from book 15. As there is no reason to suppose that the chapters intervening between the end of the Senna, chapter 79, and chapter 89, are out of place, it follows that this passage may have belonged to book 16, or even 17, but that it could not have belonged to book 15. From the interpolation of Fulgentius, we may hazard the opinion that the beginning of the fragments, as we possess them, chapters 1 to 26, form part of book 14. The dinner of Trimalchio probably formed a complete book, 15, and the continuations of the adventures of Unculpius, down to his meeting with Eumolpus, end of chapter 140, book 16. The discomfiture of Eumolpus should have closed this book, but not the entire work, as the exit of the two principal characters, is not fixed at the time our fragments come to an end. The original work, then, would probably have exceeded Tom Jones in length. 2. The Author A. Not often, says Studer, Rainisques Museum, 1843, has there been so much dispute about the author, the times, the character and the purpose of a writing of antiquity, as about the fragments of the satyricon of Petronius. The discovery and publication of the Trou manuscript brought about a literary controversy which has had few parallels, and which has not entirely died out to this day, although the best authorities ascribe the work to Caius Petronius, the arbiter elegantarium at the court of Nero. The question as to the date of the narrative of the adventures of Encolpius and his boon companions must be regarded as settled, says Theodore Mommsen. Hermes, eighteen seventy eight. This narrative is unsurpassed in originality and mastery of treatment among the writings of Roman literature, nor does any one doubt the identity of its author and the arbiter elegantarium of Nero, whose end Tacitus relates. In any case, the author of this work, if it be the work of one brain, must have been a profound psychologist, a master of realism a natural-born storyteller, and a gentleman. B. His principal object in writing the work was to amuse, but, in amusing, he also intended to pillory the aristocracy, and his wit is as keen as the point of a rapier. But, when we bear in mind the fact that he was an ancient, we will find that his cynicism is not cruel. In him there is none of the malignity of Aristophanes. But there is, rather, the attitude of the refined patrician, who is always under the necessity of facing those things, which he holds most in contempt, the supreme artist who suffers from the multitude of billboards, so to speak, who lashes the posters, but holds in pitying contempt those who know so little of true art, that they mistake those posters for the genuine article. Niebuhr's estimate of his character is so just and free from prejudice and proceeds from a mind which, in itself, was so pure and wholesome, that I will quote it. All great dramatic poets are endowed with the power of creating beings who seem to act and speak with perfect independence, so that the poet is nothing more than the relator of what takes place. When Goethe had conceived Faust and Marguerite, Mephistopheles and Wagner, they moved and had their being without any exercise of his will but in the peculiar power which petronius exercises in its application to every scene to every individual character in everything noble or mean which he undertakes i know of but one who is fully equal to the roman and that is diderot trimalchio and agamemnon might have spoken for petronius and the nephew Ramu and the parson papin for diderot in every condition and on every occasion inexhaustibly out of their own nature. Just so the purest and noblest souls, whose kind was, after all, not entirely extinct in their day. Diderot and a contemporary, related to him in spirit, Count Gaspar Gozi, are marked with the same cynicism which disfigures the Roman. Their age, like his, had become shameless but as the two former were in their heart noble, upright, and benevolent men, and as in the writings of Diderot genuine virtue and a tenderness unknown to his contemporaries breathe, so the peculiarity of such a genius can, as it seems, be given to a noble and elevated being only. The deep contempt for the prevailing immorality, which naturally leads to cynicism, and a heart which beats for everything great and glorious, virtues which then had no existence, speak from the pages of the Roman in a language intelligible to every susceptible heart. C. Beck, in his paper, The Age of Petronius Arbiter, concluded that the author lived and wrote between the years 6 AD and 34 AD, but he overlooked the possibility that the author might have lived a few years later, written of conditions as they were in his own times, and yet, laid the action of his novel a few years before. Momsen and Haley place the time under Augustus, Bucheler about thirty-six to thirty-seven A.D., and Friedlander under Nero. D. Laporte Thiel places the scene at Naples because of the fact that the city in which our heroes met Agamemnon must have been of some considerable size because neither Encolpius nor Ascyltos could find their way back to their inn, when once they had left it, because both were tired out from tramping around in search of it, and because Giton had been so impressed with this danger, that he took the precaution to mark the pillars with chalk, in order that they might not be lost a second time. The Gulf of Naples is the little bit of coastline, which fits the needs of the novel, hence the city must be Naples. The fact that neither of the characters knew the city proves that they had been recent arrivals, and this furnishes a clue, vague though it is, to what may have gone before. Haley, Harvard Studies in Classical Philology, Volume 2, makes a very strong case for Putaoli, and his theory of the old town and the new town is as ingenious as it is able. Haley also has Trimalchio in his favor, as has also La du Thiel. I saw the sibyl at Cumae," says Trimalchio. Now, if the scene of the dinner is actually at Cumae, this sounds very peculiar. It might even be a gloss added by some copyist whose knowledge was not equal to his industry. On the other hand, suppose Trimalchio is speaking of something so commonplace in his locality that the second term has become a generic, then difficulty disappears. We today, even though standing in the very spot in Milos where the Venus was unearthed, would still refer to her as the Venus de Milos. Friedlander, in bracketing Cumis has not taken this sufficiently into consideration. Momsen, in an excellent paper, Hermes, 1878, has laid the scene at Cume. His logic is almost unanswerable, and the consensus of opinion is in favor of the latter town. Three, Realism. Realism as we are concerned with it may be defined as the literary effect produced by the marshalling of details in their exactitude for the purpose of bringing out character. The fact that they may be ugly and vulgar the reverse makes not the slightest difference. The modern realist contemplates the inanimate things which surround us with peculiar complaisance, and it is right that he should as these things exert upon us a constant and secret influence. The workings of the human mind in complex civilizations are by no means simple. They are involved and varied. Our thoughts, our feelings, our wills, associate themselves with an infinite number of sensations and images which play one upon the other, and which individualize, in some measure, every action we commit and stamp it. The merit of our modern realists lie in the fact that they have studied the things which surround us and our relations to them, and thus have they been able to make their creations conform to human experience. The ancients gave little attention to this. The man, with them, was the important thing. The environment, the unimportant. There are, of course, exceptions. The interview between Ulysses and Nausicaa is probably the most striking. From the standpoint of environment, Petronius, in the greater portion of his work, is an ancient. But one exception there is, and it is as brilliant as it is important. The entire episode, in which Trimalchio figures, offers an incredible abundance of details. The descriptions are exhaustive and minute, but the author's prime purpose was not description. It was to bring out the characters. It was to pillory the Roman aristocracy, it was to amuse. Cicero, in his persecution of Verres had shown up this aristocracy in all its brutality and greed. It remained for the author of the Senna, to hold its absurdity up to the light of day, to lash an extravagance which, though utterly unbridled, was yet unable to exhaust the looted accumulations of years of political double-dealing and malfeasance in the office. Trimalchio's introduction is a masterstroke, the porter at the door is another, the effect of the wine upon the women, their jealousy lest either's husband should seem more liberal, their appraisal of each other's jewelry. Scintilla's remark anent the finesse of Habina's servant, in the mere matter of pandering, the blear-eyed and black-toothed slave, teasing a little bitch disgustingly fat, offering her pieces of bread, and when, from sheer inability, she refuses to eat, cramming it down her throat, THE EFFECT OF ALCOHOL UPON TRIMALCHIO, THE LITTLE OLD LADY GIRDED ROUND WITH A FILTHY APRON, WEARING CLOGS WHICH WERE NOT MATES, DRAGGING IN A HUGE DOG ON A CHAIN, THE INCOMPARABLE HUMOR IN THE PASSAGES IN WHICH Hesus, DESPERATELY SEASICK, SEES THAT WHICH MAKES HIM BELIEVE THAT EVEN WORSE MISFORTUNES ARE IN STORE FOR HIM. THESE DETAILS ARE MASTERPIECES OF REALISM. THE DESCRIPTION OF THE NIGHT-PROWLING SHYSTER LAWYER whose forehead is covered with sebaceous wends, is the very acme of propriety. Our first meeting with the poet Eumolpus is a beautiful study in background and perspective. Nineteen centuries have gone their way since this novel was written, but if we look about us, we will be able to recognize, under the veneer of civilization, the originals of the satiricon, and we will find that here, in a little corner of the Roman world, all humanity was held in miniature. Petronius must be credited with the great merit of having introduced realism into the novel, by an inspiration of genius. He saw that the framework of frivolous and licentious novels could be enlarged until it took in contemporary custom and environment. It is that which assures for him an eminent place, not in Roman literature alone, but in the literature of the world. A. Influence of the satiricon upon Literature the vagrant heroes of petronius are the originals from whom directly or indirectly later authors drew that inspiration which resulted in the great mask of picaresque fiction but great as this is it is not to this that the satyricon owes its powerful influence upon the literature of the world it is to the author's recognition of the importance of environment of the vital role of inanimate surroundings, as a means for bringing out character, and imbuing his episodes and the actions of his characters, with an air of reality, and with those impulses and actions which are common to human experience, that his influence is due. By this, the Roman created a new style of writing, and inaugurated a class of literature, which was without parallel until the time of Apuleius and, in a lesser degree, of Lucian. This class of literature, though modified essentially from age to age, in keeping with the dictates of moral purity or bigotry, innocent or otherwise, has come to be the very stuff of which literary success in fiction is made. One may write a successful book without a thread of romance. One cannot write a successful romance without some knowledge of realism. The more intimate the knowledge, the better the book and it is frequently to this that the failure of a novel is due, although the critic may be at a loss to explain it. Petronius lies behind Tristram Shandy, his influence can be detected in Smolet, and even Fielding paid tribute to him. 4. Forgeries of Petronius. From the very nature of the writings of such an author as Petronius, it is evident that the gaps in the text would have a marked tendency to stimulate the curiosity of literary forgers and to tempt their sagacity literary or otherwise. The recovery of the Trimalchian episode and the subsequent pamphleteering would by no means eradicate this cacothes emendandi. When, circus sixteen fifty, the library of the unfortunate Nicholas Sipico yielded up the trow fragment, the news of this discovery spread far and wide and about twelve years later statiello in response to the repeated requests of the venetian ambassador pietro basidona made with his own hand a copy of the manuscript which he sent to Bassadona. the ambassador in turn permitted this manuscript to be printed by one frambotti a printer endowed with more industry than critical acumen and the resultant textual conflation had much to do with the pamphlet war which followed had this Paduan printer followed the explicit directions which he received, and printed exactly what was given him. Much good paper might have been saved, and a very interesting chapter in the history of literary forgery would probably never have been written. The pamphlet war did not die out until Blayu, in 1670-71, to printed his exact reproduction of the Trouw manuscript, and the corrections introduced by the licentiousness of emendation of which we have spoken. In October 1690, Francois Nodot, a French soldier of fortune, a commissary officer who combined lettres and philosophy with his official duties, wrote to Charpentier, president of the Academy of France, calling his attention to a copy of a manuscript which he, Nodot, possessed, and which came into his hands in the following manner. One Dupin, a French officer detailed to service with Austria, had been present at the Sack of Belgrade in 1688, that this Dupin had, while there, made the acquaintance of a certain Greek renegade, having, as a matter of fact, stayed in the house of this renegade. The Greek's father, a man of some learning, had by some means come into possession of the manuscript, and Dupin, in going through some of the books in the house, had come across it he had experienced the utmost difficulty in deciphering the letters, and finally, driven by curiosity, had retained a copyist and had it copied out. That this Dupin had this copy in his house at Frankfurt, and that he had given Nodot to understand that if he, Nodot, came to Frankfurt, he would be permitted to see this copy. Owing to the exigencies of military service, Nodot had been unable to go in person to Frankfurt, and that he had therefore availed himself of the friendly interest and services of a certain merchant of Frankfurt, who had volunteered to find an amanuensis, have a copy made, and send it to Nodot. This was done, and Nodot concludes his letter to Charpentier, by requesting the latter to lay the result before the academy, and ask for their blessing and approval. These Nodotian supplements were accepted as authentic, by the academics of Arles and Nimes, as well as by charpentier in a short time however the voices of scholarly sceptics began to be heard in the land and accurate and unbiased criticism laid bare the fraud the latinity was attacked and exception taken to silver age prose in which was found a french police regulation which required newly arrived travellers to register their names in a book of a police officer of an italian village of the first century although they are still retained in the text by some editors this is done to give some measure of continuity to an otherwise interrupted narrative but they can only serve to distort the author and obscure whatever view of him the reader might otherwise have reached they are generally printed between brackets or in different type in 1768 another and far abler forger saw the light of day jose marchena a Spaniard of Jewish extraction, was destined for an ecclesiastical career. He received an excellent education which served to fortify a natural bent towards languages and historical criticism. In his early youth, he showed a marked preference for uncanonical pursuits and heretical doctrines, and before he had reached his thirtieth year, prudence counseled him to prevent the consequences of his heresy, and avoid the too pressing inquisition by a timely flight into france he arrived there in time to throw himself into the fight for liberty and in eighteen hundred we find him at basel attached to the staff of general moreau while there he is said to have amused himself and some of his cronies by writing notes on what davenport would have called forbidden subjects and as a means of publishing his erotic lucubrations He constructed this fragment, which brings in those topics on which he had enlarged. He translated the fragment into French, attached his notes, and issued the book. There is another story to the effect, that he had been reprimanded by Moreau, for having written a loose song, and that he exculpated himself, by assuring the general that it was but a new fragment of Petronius, which he had translated two days later he had the fragment ready to prove his contention this is the account given by his spanish biographer in his preface dedicated to the army of the rhine he states that he found the fragment in a manuscript of the work of saint Genadius on the duties of priests probably of the ninth century the close examination revealed the fact that it was a palimpsest. after treatment permitted the restoration of this fragment It is supposed to supply the gap in chapter 26, after the word verberabant. Its obscenity outrivals that of the preceding text, and the grammar, style, and curiosa felicitas petronia make it an almost perfect imitation. There is no internal evidence of forgery. If the text is closely scrutinized, it will be seen that it is composed of words and expressions taken from various parts of the satyricon and that, in every line, it has exactly the Petronian turn of phrase. Not only is the original edition unprocurable, to quote again Mr. Gasly's invaluable bibliography, but the reprint at Solier, Brussels, 1865, consisted of only a 120 copies, and is hard to find. The most accessible place for English readers is in Bond's translation, in which, however, only the Latin text is given, and the notes were a most important part of the original work. These notes, humorously and perhaps sarcastically ascribed to Le Monde, Sancte Theologe Doctor, are six in number, all on various forms of vice, and show great knowledge, classical and sociological, of unsavory subjects. Now that the book is too rare to do us any harm, we may admit that the pastiche was not only highly amusing, but showed a perverse cleverness amounting almost to genius. Marchena died at Madrid in great poverty in 1821. A contemporary has described him as being rather short and heavy-set in figure, of great frontal development, and vain beyond belief. He considered himself invincible where women were concerned. He had a peculiar predilection in the choice of animal pets, and was an object of fear and curiosity to the townspeople. His forgery might have been completely successful, had he not acknowledged it himself within two or three years, after the publication of his brochure. The fragment will remain a permanent tribute to the excellence of his scholarship. But it is his ode to Christ crucified which has made him more generally known, and it is one of the ironies of fate that caused this deformed giant of sarcasm to compose a poem of such tender and touching piety. Very little is known about Don Joe Antonio Gonzalez de Salas, whose connecting passages, with the exception of one which is irrelevant, are here included. The learned editors of the Spanish Encyclopedia naively preface their brief sketch with the following assertion. No tenemos noticia de su vida. De Salas was born in 1588 and died in 1654. His edition of Petronius was first issued in 1629 and reissued in 1643, with a copperplate of the editor. The Paris edition, from which he says he supplied certain deficiencies in the text, is unknown to bibliographers and is supposed to be fictitious. To distinguish the spurious passages as a point of interest in the present edition, the forgeries of Nodo are printed within round brackets, the forgery of Marchena within square brackets, and the additions of de Salis in italics. The work is also accompanied by a translation of the six notes, the composition of which led Marchena to forge the fragment which first appeared in the year 1800. These have never before been translated. Thanks are due, Ralph Strauss, Esquire, and Professor Stephen Gasolene. End of section zero